I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 tonight. Luke chapter 1. You might remember as we began our series some weeks back, we started with Luke chapter 3 because I just didn't feel right doing Luke 1 and Luke 2 when it wasn't cold outside yet. Uh, it's just, uh, that, that's Christmas passages naturally, and it makes sense for us to hold those back. So we're doing it a little bit backwards tonight. We're going back to Luke chapter 1, and we're coming to one of the longest chapters in the Bible, Luke 1, and it's often one of the most skipped over chapters in the New Testament. It is the chapter where Luke gives his defense for why he's writing his gospel. It is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth having awaited a child and awaited a child and awaited a child, and they're much like Manoah and his wife who eventually uh, had Samson born to them after an angel came to them, much like Abram and Sarah who laughed at the angels who came to them and said uh, that they would be having a child, and they said, well, certainly not us. We're way too old for that. We don't even have a copay for that anymore on our insurance. And uh, we're not going to do that. And then certainly so. That's when God had something big planned. And even one chapter later, we're going to see that an angel comes to Mary. And though she doesn't doubt in the same way that Zechariah does in this passage, she asks the question, well, how can this be so uh, since I've never known a man? And so we have the way in which God is using childbirth, not only in the New Testament, but leading up through very early chapters in the Old Testament. Uh, to do something special, that the difficulty uh, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were going through was partially so that God's glory could be shown in what would happen with the birth of John the Baptist. Remember in John 9 where the disciples passed by, that man had been born blind, and they said, well, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this, was, this happened so that the, the glory of God could be shown in him, that the works of God could be shown uh, in, in him gaining his sight back. God had something planned for the difficulty that Zechariah and Elizabeth were going through. But before we get to that, we get to also a very skipped over passage. Uh, and, and, you know, I could sort of understand it in some ways. Um, but the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, uh, which are quite interesting. So let's read these four verses, and then we're going to dive into some things tonight. I've got some handouts for you, I think, uh, thanks to Jimmy and maybe a couple others. I think several of y'all already got them. I appreciate my, my paper deliverers. Aren't y'all glad we got servant hearts in here, you know, to be able to pass those around? So thank y'all for helping with that. Um, Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 tonight. Luke writes... Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." George Lucas is most famous for being the producer, I guess the writer, of a movie called Star Wars that came out in the late 70s. One of the things that drew audiences in quickly to the movie Star Wars is there were no credits at the beginning. Y'all ever watch an old movie and you turn it on and you just sit there and for the first three or four minutes you're just thinking, when are we going to get through all these names? I don't care about all these. I don't know who these people are. When am I going to get through that? You remember those old movies, they'd always have the book open and then the page would turn, you know, with all these <laughs> names on them. And it's this idea of why we got to deal with this right at the beginning. When we come to the beginning of the verses in Luke, if we're not careful, we could have the same thought. 
why have we got to have the opening credits here? Let's just get to the story. Well, there's some really important things that Luke says in this passage. And uh, just in case you never thought about them, I think it's a helpful thing uh, to get a chance to look at those tonight. I remember seeing the Jesus film that Campus Crusade for Christ produced. And when they did that, sure enough, they followed the gospel of Luke and they started out with this same phrase that... uh, uh, inasmuch as many have sought after to have an orderly account, and you just, you're sitting there going, okay, uh, you know, that's one way to start. Luke is a scholar. He is someone who is writing what he says, an orderly account, an account that's based on eyewitnesses and those in gospel ministry and otherwise. Uh, he's, he's delivering this with care. He's taken some time to do that. And he's writing the most scholarly of the four Gospels, the biggest words to the audience that perhaps is the most educated, uh, because when you've got to read big words, you know, you've got to do that. And so Luke is speaking about the beautiful magnificence of Jesus, but even in the beginning, he's going to say this in a way that uh, helps us to understand why he has done what he's done. So here's a few things, if you've never noticed them before, I wanted to try to bring these out. Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken. And so even at the time where Luke is writing his gospel, he recognizes that there have been numerous people who have written some account, some some way of either speaking or writing uh, into who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And so Luke's recognizing he's not the first and probably more than likely there's some amount of account that's higher than even Matthew and Mark. Most likely, it's my belief, you know, Christian history states that Matthew wrote his gospel first. Uh, Many who examine documents and try to figure out what came before what and those kind of things believe that Mark perhaps wrote first. We won't know that until we get to heaven, but more than likely by the data, it seems like Matthew and Mark came before the gospel of Luke. And so Luke would have perhaps had Matthew and Mark and other accounts, and there may have been those that were lost to history that in essence made it into Luke's account or Matthew's account or Mark's account. Um, but, uh, but for those, God knew which accounts needed to last the test of time and which didn't. And Luke is recognizing he's not the first. You know, one of the most important things we can understand as Christians is that we're also not the first. Isn't that good? You know, we're not the first and we won't be the last. There was an old Charlie Brown cartoon where uh, Charlie's little sister, uh, Sally, you know, who had a crush on Linus, she's writing a book report for school and her topic is church history. So she writes this first line and says, this is my report on church history. Charlie Brown leans over and looks over her shoulder to see what she's writing. And she says, our pastor was born in 1932. And it was if to think that the entire history of the church began when her pastor was born. And likewise, if we're not careful, we can sort of think that the story begins and ends with us if we're not uh, real careful. Luke was saying right off the bat, this is not my story necessarily. I'm the compiler, but many have undertaken uh, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. The things that have been accomplished. That what Jesus did was fulfill a mission and accomplish a purpose. He did not come in order to simply be a show for folks to marvel at or a series of miracles and wonders for them to say, boy, wasn't that good? Wasn't that nice? Didn't that bless your heart? Jesus' ministry was more than that. 
And so Luke sets about, like, like any gospel writer, like any uh, biblical author, that under the power of the Holy Spirit, they are setting about to accomplish and give evidence of what has been accomplished. And, uh, and in that way, Luke is pointing to Jesus as having accomplished his purpose. He says then that just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, that Luke's interaction in a big way was not going off in a cave, falling into a trance, and then writing words down that, uh, you know, that somehow if we're not careful, we think that's the only way God's going to speak through someone. When we believe in inspiration and inerrancy, that doesn't mean that people couldn't use the natural means that were there for God to still work through uh, that, that being the case. I, I'm thankful, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful when we come to the message of the Bible, the Bible was written by multiple authors over multiple centuries, and many times those authors were even somewhat of a committee unto themselves of other people. And so we don't have to say, well, I'm willing to trust Luke. Well, Luke's impact and Luke's story is coming from so many others. And even Luke is only one of four gospel accounts that we have. God's uh, design for us, aren't you thankful, wasn't to put all our eggs in one basket to say, well, I'm going I'm to put everything I know on trusting this one person who did this, you know, one thing uh, to write down for us, that there's this way it's spread across. And so Luke becomes one of those. If I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket, it's going to be for the Lord Jesus. I'm not willing to do that for anybody else. And so, uh, so Luke has this sense of saying, this is how we've done it. There were eyewitnesses, there were ministers of the word. Anybody know the main minister of the word that Luke hung out with? The Apostle Paul. And so we see, obviously, in the book of Acts, that a great deal. Uh, but the ministers of the word who were not an eyewitness, there was none more so than the Apostle Paul. And Luke certainly spent a lot of time around him. The word have delivered them to us, and it, it seemed good to me. <laughs> Any of you ever gotten in trouble doing something that seemed good to you? You don't need to take it that way. It seemed good to me. What Luke means, I think, in this sense is having followed all things closely for some time past, that Luke was patient, he was careful, and he used his own judgment and his own discernment. And so he is writing and putting his stamp of approval in that sense on what he's writing to say, it seems good to me in the way that this has been relayed and compiled and otherwise I have peace about the, the message that uh, I would give. It seemed good to me having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. An orderly account. Now, I don't think Luke's saying that any other account was not orderly, though you will find, you know, if you were to read different works of literature from the ancient world, you'll find plenty of disorderly <laughs> works of literature. But Luke is writing an organized, both in theme and chronology in different ways. He's carefully writing uh, the story of Jesus so that people can gain from that. And then he says, most excellent Theophilus. Now, there's probably not a lot of people in this room that have had Greek courses, but if you had to sort of dig into this word and come up with what it meant for this name, you'd probably be able to get a little ways, wouldn't you? If you think about the term theology, theology is the study of God or a study of the things of God. And so theo, meaning God, and then if you've ever heard the whole term of what Philadelphia means, Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. Unless you go to the football game there, I've heard it's not very brotherly love at the Eagles games, but, uh, but the city of brotherly love, this term uh, philos, uh, that, that love. And so Theophilus literally means one who loves God, 
or a lover of God. And so some have questioned, is that a real name? Is that somebody who actually was, that was their actual name? Was it a nickname for a person? Was it simply a symbol for anybody who would read this gospel to say, you must be a lover of God if you are reading this. And so let me give you the account. Uh, And once again, that's something we can find out when we get to heaven, but I don't have a clear, you know, definite answer for you tonight. Uh, But in, in, in the very least, it applies to us to say, for those who are seeking to love the Lord, there is this beautiful truth that those who seek will find and those who knock, the door will be opened up to them. And so Luke, maybe, maybe in an attempt to say so, and perhaps just through the work of the Holy Spirit, even if he didn't know what he was saying, that if you come to the gospel with the desire to love God, what is hidden in the pages or what is shown in the pages of the gospel will allow you through the work of Jesus Christ revealed to love God more fully and to know him in a way where you otherwise wouldn't. An orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught, that you may have certainty. Not that you may feel better about rolling the dice about Jesus, or you may feel, you know, a little bit of peace and inspiration, but no substance underneath it. I remember some years ago when inspirational became the category name for Christian things, in bookstores and other areas. And I remember hearing folks say, I don't like that word. And and in some ways it is, it kind of reduces Christian faith to saying, well, what's going to make you feel better? That the hope of the gospels is not just to make us feel better, though it should do that, but to give us certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. And so our hope as we examine the gospel is to have that same foundation, the certainty of who Christ is, what he's done and what that means for us. Let me show you a few pictures here. This is uh, said to be the tomb of Luke. I don't know how old this stone is, but this is the traditional location where Luke is buried in Ephesus. Now the cross, or, or excuse me, the tomb here, the tombstone depicts two things. The one on the top you probably can see better, a cross, which you probably wouldn't need an explanation for. But on the bottom, there is a a bull uh, that often was represented with Luke, kind of strange. But at some point in some sectors of the early church, they started identifying the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4 that that are there in heaven with the Lord. And and they started identifying them with the four gospel writers. Uh, That would not be my interpretation of Revelation chapter 4. But if you're ever in an Orthodox church or another church that has some sort of historical paintings, uh, if you ever see a gospel writer with an animal's picture attached, that'll clue you in on where that comes from. Uh, Luke, for reasons that I don't know, uh, was attached to being the uh, the cow, the the ox or or otherwise that was pictured there. Here's a picture of Luke uh, on a a church in Rome, a a mosaic that's there. The Apostle Paul is pictured on the right, and then Luke is there on the left. The two of them traveled together. And at times, Paul even refers to his gospel in his writings, and some have believed he's referencing the gospel of Luke, uh, which he would have played perhaps some role in, uh, and, uh, and also in addition to, to other eyewitnesses that Luke was, uh, was hearing from. And so that sort of shows sometimes Luke and Paul will be linked together. If you were going to write... In Luke's day, you wouldn't get to use a computer and you wouldn't get to use an ink pen. Uh, You wouldn't even use a quill like the uh, every time you picture Thomas Jefferson sitting down to write the Declaration of Independence. Uh, But what you often would use would be, uh, this is a, a vat of ink from around the time of Luke. 
So perhaps you would have ink in there and then you would have a stylus, not for use on any electronic device uh, that you would have, you could dip into the ink and then write with. Isn't it amazing that in 17 centuries between Luke and the colonial Americas, there wasn't a whole lot of innovation in ink pens. And so I didn't make it too far in those 17 centuries. Now for 25 cents, you can go and get, you know, an ink pen somewhere and, and have a better situation than the finest scholars in the Roman Empire at the time. There's some who believe that the most excellent Theophilus that Luke wrote to uh, was a man that is uh, named in the book of Acts at one point, Sergius, Sergio Paulus. He, uh, when you use the term most excellent, um, we might use that now if you, if you talk to a, a surfer in the 1990s, they might be quick to say most excellent, you know, and that wouldn't seem like anything big. But saying most excellent in the ancient world would have been like saying your honor in our culture. And so people would have to earn the title of most excellent. The only person by name in the Bible that we know of that perhaps Luke could be writing to would be this man, Sergio Paulus. Certainly could have been plenty of others, and it may not have meant that at all, but there's some who believe this might have been the Theophilus uh, that Luke was writing to. And we'll come to Zechariah's story in just a moment. Zechariah is believed to have lived in a hillside location uh, that's shown here, a town called Ain Karem. And so that is uh, still, obviously, in, in Israel today. A nice little hillside town, um, little mountain retreat that uh, Mary got to go stay with them uh, while she was uh, awaiting the birth of Jesus. And so you, you've, yeah, got this nice little hillside town. We'll see that Zechariah was chosen by Lot to go into the Holy of Holies in the, in the temple. Um, you may not know this, but the dice that we use in our day and age uh, looks a whole lot like the dice. Now, we don't know exactly the lot that was used in that case, but dice were around as a kind of lot casting device, especially for non-Jewish cultures in that area of the world. But um, here are some dice from Egypt around the time of Christ. Looks a whole lot like they could have been in the Monopoly set you grew up with, don't they? Not a lot has changed uh, for some of them in, in 20 centuries. Uh, you can see here, these were even dice that came from uh, either Israel or Syria, so even in that area of the world. Um, it could be, and we're not told exactly what the lot casting was, uh, but it could very well have been something that's very close to something that we uh, know and understand. The temple itself at the time of Jesus, the time of Zechariah, this is a model, but it looks something like that, uh, that he would have been in this inner court, this kind of towered building there in the middle, that that's where Zechariah would have gone as we read that passage in just a moment and would be there ministering uh, before uh, the incense. Here's another shot of that same. And then here is a shot of what it may have looked like here this inner altar and the incense that came out of that looks sort of like the grill in your backyard, doesn't it, fellas? You know, not too different. And so an area for burning incense. This is actually, these are incense bowls from the 13th century B.C. And they've survived and they still exist. Uh, these are in a museum uh, in Israel. And so perhaps something like this would have been where the burning incense would have been uh, transferred to at times. And then, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, it's not cream corn, it's actually frankincense. So if you've ever wanted to know what frankincense looked like, looks a little bit like that. Lastly, I, I couldn't help but show this. Uh, this is a shovel from eight centuries 
before Zechariah uh, used a shovel with 8th century BCs, BC. Um, you know, we get excited if we find something from the 1950s, don't we, around here? And uh, it's just not like that in some areas of the world. Eight centuries before Christ uh, came to the earth, we, we see these shovels here tonight. So let's walk through our passage tonight. We're going to look now that we've looked at the opening statement, we're going to look at the story of Zechariah. So if you would, go ahead and look at verse 5. We're going to go ahead and read through verse 25 and then talk about a few pieces of this in the time that we've got left. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home, and after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The story of Zechariah is the story of two things at once. It is the story of the broken silence of 400 years of the history of God's people. And it is the story of a miraculous personal blessing for an older couple who had prayed for something for a long time. How many of you believe that God's big enough, good enough, and sovereign enough to do two things at once, five things at once, 10,000 things at once? And he did both at the same time. For 400 years from the end of the book of Malachi to the beginning and opening chapters of the Gospels, there had been no prophetic voice in uh, Judea and Israel and among the people of God, 400 years. 
You read the testimony of the Old Testament and you won't find anywhere near a span of time that God seems so absent. Obviously, the Hebrews in bondage in Egypt for roughly 400 years, that transition that happened there is maybe the closest comparison, but you see 400 years of silence. And they weren't 400 years of nothing happening. Uh, the, uh, the kingdom of Alexander the Great spreads all the way through the Middle East and even all the way to India. I guess I should go this way for y'all looking at me going east that way. And as he, he conquers almost the entire known world at a younger age than I am today, and he does so and, and dies at a younger age out of a, a mysterious, some people believe he might have been poisoned or otherwise, uh, illness. And then like many conquerors who accomplish this great feat and gain this great empire, when they're gone, all of a sudden the question becomes, okay, who gets what? And the empire split into different areas and different factions. Uh, the Israelites have to fight against uh, kingdoms during the, what's called the Maccabean Revolt, and they face times of great difficulty. But even then, God sends them no prophet, though he sent them deliverance. It's only here that Luke brings out the ending of the silence of God. And it comes to an old man after many years who just prayed for a child until the point where he probably believed it's too late. And this is how God chooses to once again step into the human race and to speak hope about what is to come. You know, interestingly enough, John's gospel begins with a cosmic picture of the eternal nature of Jesus. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we get this focus of reaching as far back as you can go. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy and then Joseph. And so we see Joseph's interaction, but it seems from the timetable that Zechariah was probably the first one uh, to gain a voice from heaven speaking to him. Mark doesn't deal with anything uh, before Jesus' uh, adult ministry and just goes straight to his baptism, essentially. And so Luke is the one who tells us exactly how the beginning you know, points, the small snowball starts to roll down the hill. Here's the points where things begin. And so we're introduced to this man, a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, both he and his wife uh, from the tribe of Levi. They're coming out of this priestly line and they are going to, uh, uh, he, he's serving as a priest as many would have been at that time uh, in that division. It was believed that there were several thousand priests at that time who could have won the lottery, so to speak, had their lot cast in order to do what Zechariah does in this passage. It would have been very normal for them to only perform that duty once or maybe twice in their lifetime. So this is a very special occasion for Zechariah to be able to go in to the altar of incense and, uh, and, and never having perhaps done this before, never more than likely doing this again, and to have it be such a special moment. Many of you are familiar with the, the Old Testament law and that they would, you know, go into this Holy of Holies, and, and at this time it would be almost a dangerous moment in the presence of God. And even here, so many centuries later, there would have been that same reverence uh, applied. So let me try to stay with the list that you've got tonight. And the first thing that I've got, God broke the silence to a couple with credentials, but no blessing. To a couple with credentials, but no blessing. You know what credentials are, right? Every year, uh, Southern Baptists get together both at an annual meeting as, as a, you know, the entire worldwide Southern Baptists, 
We also have one for our state that is meeting, I believe, here in about two weeks uh, in Greensboro. And every year, and, and I know I've gone to that a number of years, and one of the things that always cracks me up the most are the elections of officers for the Southern Baptist Convention. Because whoever's nominating that person for that office in the Southern Baptist Convention is tasked with trying to convince everybody in the audience, the person I'm nominating is more Southern Baptist than the other guy. And so I used to laugh. It was almost like you could play credential bingo for Southern Baptists and you just sort of check one off. So a guy would get up and he'd say, so-and-so has been a pastor for so many years and he is a friend to Southern Baptists. He was a graduate of, uh, let's see here, uh, Gardner-Webb University for his undergrad. He then graduated from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You're just walking down the list, check, check, check. He served on this board. He's done this and that. So credentials are the ways in which you say you're qualified to do something. Look at the credentials that the Gospel of Luke gives for Zechariah and for Elizabeth. No greater thing could be said to the people of God, about the people of God, then verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, when the Bible says that somebody was blameless, that does not mean that they were sinless because none of us can be sinless. What that does mean is that they were in right relationship with the Lord and they were walking with the Lord to the best of their ability and they were seeking the power and the input of God in their life and they were faithful in the ways that he was calling them to and when there was sin in their life, they repented and came back. That's, that's the best any of us can hope for in being blameless is being faithful to walk with the Lord in the way that he's called us. That's why Noah could be called blameless, go through the flood and then the very next chapter something goes wrong. You know, that, that, that even being blameless doesn't mean that you're above sin, but, uh, but, but in this context, Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful, uh, that they, they were blameless in the sense that they were honoring the Lord and walking with Him. Verse 7, but they had no child. Interesting comparison of the two, right? It's almost a little bit leaning into the day where there would have been this almost prosperity gospel that was there even then. Well, if God really favored you, you would have had a kid or two. And sometimes in our world, in our day, we might think, well, if God really loved me, I'd have this, I'd have that. We think about certain boxes that we're supposed to check or supposed to have. And if we don't have them, we wonder what's wrong. We wonder who failed. We wonder what, what went wrong. God broke the silence to a couple with credentials but no blessing. You and I can't control whether we, you know, have children in the sense of whether we're blessed ultimately uh, in that way. There's a number of things that we can't ultimately completely control on our own. We are able to seek after the Lord and to walk with Him, and so the areas where they could be faithful, they were. And so Zechariah was serving as a priest, and sure enough, he's chosen by lot to enter the temple I love verse 10. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the, out, at the uh, hour of incense. The whole multitude of the people. Now, I don't know about you, but it's a lot easier for a preacher when he knows the people have been praying. You can stand up and speak to those folks. You can feel like those folks are with you. you you're trusting the power of God. It's more than just whatever you would bring to the table. When God's people are praying, as one pastor put it, you don't, pray, you don't have to pray for revival at that point. Revival has come. 
And so for God's people to be praying at the time in which Zechariah is going before the altar is a powerful picture, not only of what's going on in Zechariah and Elizabeth's heart, uh, but the hearts of the people. The whole multitude of the people were praying. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, it's almost always the leading phrase of an angel, isn't it? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I don't know what they look like, but must be, you know, fear falls. There's times where people don't understand they're speaking to angels in the Bible, but other times where don't be afraid has to be the first line that's given. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, verse 13, for your prayer has been heard. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. The your that is in that statement, y'all know that in, in Greek language is a language that's better than proper English language. You know why? Because Greek language has a y'all. Now here in the South, we've, we've added a y'all in there, but the, the dictionary doesn't recognize it, does it? Not truly proper. You know, you can't go over to England and start saying y'all. They're not going to look at you real good. But they had a y'all, a second person plural in the Greek language. So we know in the Bible uh, what the difference is between you and y'all. We don't ever have to guess. You know, it's so interesting to me that a multitude of people are praying outside as Zechariah goes in. And certainly they're praying for things uh, like forgiveness and for God's hand to be upon them. They're praying for deliverance from their oppressors. They are praying for all the things that we could walk through and say this would be the right and godly prayers of the people, a balance of their own personal need and prayers for the entire congregation, the entire nation. No doubt there's wonderful prayers for an entire hour being prayed by all this multitude of people. But the angel looks at Zechariah and he doesn't say God's heard y'all's prayers. He says God's heard your prayer. You're gonna have a child. God's heard yours. Same way at the Last Supper. Remember Jesus saying to Simon Peter, Satan's asked to sift y'all as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your strength may not fail, your faith may not fail. There's this really beautiful balance of what's going on. So I skipped over number two, though I talked about it a little bit. God broke the silence through the Jewish or Old Testament system of worship with the priest and the, the offerings, the burning of incense, with the holy of holies in the temple. Much of this connects back to the Exodus, that God broke the silence through the Jewish system of worship. And then number three, God broke the silence collectively to humanity and personally to a hurting couple. God broke the silence collectively to humanity as well as personally or and personally to a hurting couple. It doesn't have to be either or. Isn't that wonderful? God doesn't have to answer somebody else's prayers at the expense of your prayers. God's big enough to do it all. And so God solves the great need of human history, the need of a savior, and yet at the same time, he meets the needs of a couple who had been praying for a child for so long, and much of this delay and this wait is that so God could show something mighty that's happening for the nation and for the people and, and for all of this to, to make the way for the Messiah. And so God is doing both at the same time. 
that in answering the prayer of a righteous couple who had been praying for so long, he solves the problem of human history at the same time or, or makes the opening steps uh, towards Jesus' entrance to the world. He says this about John the Baptist. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And, and this is an important thing for us to understand. There is a transition, so to speak, on either side of the cross in how the Holy Spirit's action is seen in God's people. And it's important for us to understand this. In the Old Testament, when you see the Holy Spirit at work, what you often see is that the Holy Spirit's role in the life of God's people was to enable and empower them to accomplish the work that God had set forth for them to do. And that's why Samson and the power of the Holy Spirit could take the jawbone of a donkey and beat up a bunch of Philistines. And the Holy Spirit, thank the Lord, is not going to call you to do the same thing tonight. That there is this empowering for God's people to do what God had for them to do. Often, at times, it was a spiritual role, something we would think of as that way. But other times, it was some sort of feat of strength. It was a miracle of some kind, or it was simply an action that needed to be done. And so, John the Baptist is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, not because he made a decision to trust in Christ as his personal Savior from his mother's womb but because John the Baptist is the ending of the prophetic line that leads all the way up to Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, who now would fulfill all of those offices. And so John the Baptist is seeing the power of the Holy Spirit sort of in the last way uh, that, that God's calling in that way before ultimately we see uh, the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit now coming to indwell the hearts of those who have trusted in Christ. And so we see that from the very beginning here, that John the Baptist is going to be used by God from a very young age. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he was going to preach like Elijah, and he was going to dress like Elijah, and he was going to eat bugs and honey just like Elijah. He was going to go, I don't know, you know, for those of you, I don't know, Monday, if you had any kids, grandkids, or even yourself, said, I'm going to dress up and I'm going to be fully committed. Well, John the Baptist was fully committed all the way to the office that God had called him to. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist was going to lay the stage for Jesus. He was going to set um, the people of Israel's hearts to a place of being able to best hear and best know the truth that Jesus would give. Now, if you ever get a chance to encounter an angel, take the counsel of Scripture, and whatever they tell you, say, that sounds great. Here, you want to repeat after me? Let's try that. One, two, three. That sounds great. Yep. So many people in the Bible that when they're told something by an angel, their first reaction is, yeah, I got to be honest, I don't see that happening. <laughs> and it doesn't work out very well for them. Zechariah said to the angel, verse 18, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. Behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
Now, you and I might make the argument, well, you know, I don't know that it means Zechariah didn't believe him. He just asked a question. Well, the angel knew what we didn't know and was able to read what was going on in Zechariah's heart. And God ultimately, working through this angel, said, well, if you're not willing to trust me, let's go ahead and teach you a lesson this way, that you're going to be silent until the day uh, that John is born. God broke the silence, number four, and encountered disbelief. God broke the silence and encountered disbelief. One of the great tragedies in your and my life is no matter what God sometimes does in our hearts and lives, we can be prone to disbelief. We can be prone to not truly trust. Or even if we trusted last week or last month or last year, all of a sudden coming out of the valley and onto the mountaintop and getting ready to head down into another valley, we're quick to not trust in the same way or not believe or not, not look to the Lord in the same way. God broke the silence, and even in somebody who was blameless and righteous, he encountered disbelief in him. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. I don't know if priests of that day were sort of like preachers of our day. Sometimes my kids are just waiting is he ever going to get out of church? Is he ever going to stop talking to people? I don't, I don't know. Maybe I don't know what they thought. But when, John, when Zechariah came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So the angels already said, Gabriel's already said to Zechariah uh, that they're going to have a child. Elizabeth's going to give birth. They're going to call his name John. It says this great line, uh, verse 14, you'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For Zechariah, you're going to have joy and gladness. You know what that makes me think? Maybe they didn't have a lot of joy and gladness in their life at that moment. Maybe for all the things that have been hurtful so far, this was going to be a healing move towards bringing joy into their life. You'll have joy and gladness, and there'll be much rejoicing. You know what rejoicing is? That's joy out loud. So there's going to be inward and there's going to be outward joy that comes through at the birth of John. But now, Zechariah's lack of faith means the road's going to be more challenging than it would otherwise. He comes out, can't speak, but his time of service ends and he went to his home. I love what we get in these last two verses. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, you might say, Jonathan, I think you're reading between the lines here too much, and, and I may be guilty of that, so don't take this too far tonight, but it's my belief that a lady who waits five months to tell anybody else that she's carrying a child wants to be really sure that that child is going to be carried all the way to being able to have a safe birth. I don't know what Zechariah and Elizabeth's road was, um, but it may have included pain of pregnancies that began but didn't end well. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, there was a loss of hope and a need for joy and gladness that the angel speaks into. And so even with an angel having visited her husband for five months, 
Elizabeth may have been fearful to believe that something that good could be happening before she starts to share with somebody else and to say, surprise, you probably thought I was a little bit too old for this. My grandmother and my great-grandmother were pregnant with children at the same time. They were a large farming family, so my, my mother had an aunt that was basically her age. Some of y'all may have grown up in families where that was the case too. But, um, but for Elizabeth, she's probably not got a lot of people her age who were, you know, expecting a baby at that time. But I bet she was about as happy as she'd ever been. Making it to that point of seeing that this is, this is really going to happen. Thus, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You know, people sometimes try to work out their own reasons for why things happen. And I wonder how many people around Elizabeth thought, you know, I bet Elizabeth really isn't as great as she tries to act like she is because certainly the Lord would have blessed her with a baby. And I wonder how much she had to deal with where she was perhaps overly concerned with what people thought. God broke the silence, letter E, and kept his promise. He broke the silence and he kept his promise. Not only his promise to the nation, not only his promise to humanity, certainly God is not obligated nor has he promised any of us that we will have children, but he does come to Zechariah and make a promise that will involve a miracle. And he's faithful to keep that promise, which meant the world not only to humanity, but to this couple. I'd like to close with an illustration that I read some years back, you know, thinking on this topic of the idea of trusting God, even when the time gets long, even when the circumstances are something that we don't understand. This is from a book by uh, J. Kirk Johnston. It tells the story of a man named Richard, or excuse me, Roger Sims. Roger Sims was hitchhiking his way home on May the 7th, some years back. He had a heavy suitcase. He was anxious to take off his army uniform. And back when people used to hitchhike and, and it was normal, he uh, saw an oncoming car, but he lost hope when he saw that it was a sleek, brand new Cadillac. And he thought, well, surely this guy's not going to pick me up. All of a sudden, this car pulled over to the side of the road, opened the door, and this nicely dressed businessman who was up in age a little bit more than him opened the door and let him get in. And he said, well, I'm going to Chicago. And he said, well, you're in luck. That's where I'm going to. I have a business there. My name is Hanover. And he told him a little bit about his business. And after talking about a few things, Roger, who was a Christian, began to feel a compulsion to witness to uh, this successful businessman about Christ. He kept putting it off until he realized he was about 30 minutes from home. It was now or never. So Roger cleared his throat and he said, Mr. Hanover, I'd like to talk to you about something very important. And he proceeded to explain the way of salvation. And he ultimately asked Mr. Hanover if he'd like to receive Christ as his savior. To Roger's astonishment, the Cadillac pulled over to the side of the road. Roger thought he was gonna be ejected from the car, but the businessman bowed his head and received Christ with tears and thanked Roger, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Five years went by, Roger married. He had a two-year-old little boy and he had a business of his own. And he got to take a business trip into the heart of Chicago and he found the small white business card that Hanover had given him five years before. And in Chicago, he looked, over, he looked up Hanover Enterprises, came there, this large building, and a receptionist told him that it was impossible to see Mr. Hanover, but he could see Mrs. Hanover. 
A little confused, he was ushered into a lovely office and found himself facing a keen-eyed woman in her 50s. She extended her hand and said, you knew my husband? Roger told her how her husband had given him a ride when hitchhiking after the war. Can you tell me when that was? He said, it was May the 7th, five years ago, the day I was discharged from the army. Is there anything special about that day? Roger hesitated after asking this question. He wondered whether to mention about giving witness to what he had done. He'd come so far, he might as well take the plunge. And he said, Mrs. Hanover, I explained the gospel to your husband and he pulled over to the side of the road and he wept against the steering wheel and he gave his life to Christ that day. All of a sudden, Mrs. Hanover began to explode into big time sobs. Getting a grip on herself, she sobbed, I'd prayed for my husband's salvation for years and I'd believed that God would save him. He was in a car crash after he let you out of the car and never got home. You see, I thought God had not kept his promise, she said. And sobbing uncontrollably, she said, I stopped living for God five years ago because I thought he had not kept his word. You and I never get to see all the things that God is doing. But in the balance of our personal lives and the needs of human history, God is sovereign enough to break the silence into both in might, power, love, mercy, grace. So be reminded by the story of a silent man made silent by an angel, Zechariah, and Elizabeth who was scared to hope but found that she could trust the Lord. Why don't you join me in prayer tonight as we close? Father, like Zechariah, we are often quick to disbelieve. And Lord, we're reminded that not only does humanity need Jesus, we need Jesus. I need Jesus. Not just for a lifetime, not just for next year, next month, not just for next week or tomorrow, but today and now. And so, Lord, all around this room for the areas where we're called to trust and believe what might be difficult for areas where we're praying, like the people gathered around outside the temple, like the wife of Mr. Hanover, and for the circumstances that we feel that we've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Lord, would you allow us to keep trusting? Would you allow us to keep praying and keep hoping? And Lord, as the angel said for Zechariah, Father, may we see joy and gladness and rejoicing in your work accomplished, in you using us for your glory. And so, Father, may we believe and be willing and trust. And we thank you, Lord, that even in a time that seems silent, you had a plan to break that silence. And we can be hopeful in times that seem silent and difficult as well. We thank you, Father. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.